It's often encouraged in uh, public speaking and preaching in particular to use a hook at the beginning to get the attention of uh, your hearers, your listeners. And I don't really need to, I don't think I see real, really a need to impose some sort of a hook on this text any more than what's already there. I'm sure that you already caught it. It says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Even the babies are silent. The air just gets sucked out of the room. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. How's that for a hook? How's that for an attention getter? I'll tell you, this is one of the most uh, dividing passages in the book of Hebrews. It's the most challenging in my estimation and in the estimation of most uh, preachers and uh, commentators. How are we to understand this sort of a statement? I can think of a few churches even here in Hagerstown that would interpret this passage wildly different. I think what we'll see is there's a couple different ways to interpret it. But really, at the end of the day, there's a couple things that float to the surface there and allow us to see, regardless of which way you look at it, how serious this text actually is. Before we get to all that information, I want to just briefly walk through a couple of these interpretations. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, I want to give you three general ways to interpret this passage. After we get done working through those three interpretations, we'll look at three responses to what I think is the right interpretation. And hopefully there'll be one interpretation or one response that you'll lean into. But here are those interpretations. First, that it's only a warning. It's only a warning. It's not really true. It's not even possible that this would actually take place. It's only a warning. Two, it's truly a tragedy. It really is speaking of Christians, genuine Christians, who have actually lost their salvation. That's another interpretation. And the final interpretation is it's simply a mirage. A mirage in the sense that these people who appeared to be Christians, who tasted of all of these things and now have fallen away, have now truly just revealed themselves to not be Christians at all. Let's work through those three. To illustrate the first one, let me bring back a painful memory for many of you. The point began to become clear when the car was actually beginning to stop. Dad was pulling the car over. Or maybe it was when the flip-flop began to come off, you realized the hammer was falling. Or maybe it was when Dad finally got home and the report card was going to be read by him and judgment would be had. You came in those points in your childhood to the reality that the warnings that you had been given by your parents, that they were going to pull that car over. Don't make me take my flip-flop off. You wait till your father gets home. You began to realize that those warnings were not empty. There's a temptation for us as we read this scripture, this warning passage, for us to think that it is only that, an empty warning. Sympathy for that kind of a view, it comes from the stern, follow, or stern warning that's actually followed by a warm and gentle response there in verse 9, where it says, though we speak in this way, it's really a dangerous situation, though I speak in this way, yet in your case, church, we feel sure of better things. He seems to soften up his warning I don't really think this is true of you, he says to the local church there. But he still gives the warning. And it is a warning. I believe it's more than just a warning, that it actually has some teeth to it. There's a couple passages that I want us to look at. That if we were to only take Romans, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. We might come to the conclusion that they, by themselves, are an empty warning. But I want to invite you just to open your book, the book of Hebrews, open it up to the second chapter. Look at verses 1 through 4. This will be a good 
Good thing to underline here. Maybe to put a little code next to a, some sort of a star or an asterisk. We're going to look at four or five passages here that I will all tie together. But there in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, it says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see, what we read in Hebrews chapter 6 isn't the only warning. That there's a, uh, uh, an opportunity to fall away. But we see it again in chapter 2, or first in chapter 2. But then look at chapter 3, particularly verse 6. What does it say? But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so there's a connection that we see there between us being, the, you being a part of the house of God, the household of God, the family of God, and you holding fast your confidence in Christ. There's a connection between the two. We see it again in verse 14 of that same chapter. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now look at chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him of whom we must give account. There's another warning passage. You see, are there teeth in the lion? Should we truly be afraid? Should we have the fear of God that his judgment is real and we will face it? Oh, don't worry. God is love. Jesus is kind. The cross is, is mighty to save. All of those things are true. But do they negate the fact that there is a coming judgment and there's a potentiality that you'll drift away, that you'll fall away? That is also true. But that's not the only warning passages that we see. We haven't covered these yet, but in chapter 10, turn there. Chapter 10, verses 26 and following. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what does remain a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he or was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? These are heavy these are heavy warnings. Look at the end of the same chapter. Chapter 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Finally, look at chapter 12, verses 25 and following. What does it say? Chapter 12. 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When we read these warnings, it rouses us back to the reality that we need to have a healthy fear of God. I love the stories of Narnia. One of my favorites is uh, portions of the, the story is when the Pevensey children, are, they land there in Narnia 
and they come to the house of Mr. Beaver. And they don't know much about this great king of the land. They don't know much about Aslan, but as they hear about him, they think this is a terrible, terribly great creature. And the young girl looks to Mr. Beaver and she says, is he safe? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that response. You see, we look to the Lord sometimes and we think because of his great love for us, because of his great kindness to us and his steadfast faithfulness towards us that he is absolutely safe and we have nothing to fear. But the reality is that we do have to fear. You see, he is not safe, but he is good. And this warning that we have been given, that we read this morning, it's not without teeth. The truth is that there is an opportunity, there is a possibility that even you this morning, under the preaching of this text, could understand the gospel, could even aspire to respond in faith to it, and yet in some way, at some point, by some manner, be drawn away and not make it to the end. Brothers and sisters, as we read this text, you may think, he's only saying this just to scare them. It's not really a possibility. He's only telling them that that's true. To wake them up. The reality is he is deeply concerned for their spiritual state. There are those in this church that he is writing to that consider themselves to be Christians. They consider themselves to be a part of the community of faith. And indeed, they are looking as if they have fallen away from God. And his warning is coming to them. It's of some severe, impending judgment for those who will not listen. It's not empty. Verse 4 says, it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened... And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. What's the first understanding here, the first interpretation? That it's only a warning, nothing else. Genuine Christians have become lazy and they just need to be rattled awake. It's true. Christians do need to be rattled awake. But this warning is a real warning. It truly has teeth. And so we perhaps all agree that it's not just an empty warning, but we still are then asking, who are these people that we see in verse 4? Who could they actually be? Who are these people that fall away? That leads me to the second interpretation, and that's the heading is truly a tragedy, and it's a tragedy because this position, this interpretation declares that these are genuine Christians. These are real Christians who were saved at one point in their life, who had obtained salvation by the grace of God through faith, and now they've lost their salvation. That's the second view here. For many of us who've been taught once saved, always saved, this passage, I'm sure, causes you concern. You have to allow the text, though, to correct any doctrine that you espouse, we never, we're never to adjust the text to protect your beliefs. Oftentimes, that's what we want to do. And by the way, this is a great opportunity for me just to pastorally help you to see that each of us come, into, come to the Word of God having something to say and wanting to speak when we really should come desiring to listen. Not desiring to shoehorn or fit the text into what we have already systematized. Well, this can't possibly be true, and so I'll just not believe it. We can never, never come to God's word in that way. One of our values as a church is that the word matters here. The word of God matters here. And we'll not take our preconceived, systematized theology, our cultural preferences, we'll not take them to the scripture and force them or the scripture to, to submit to that will do the exact opposite. And so what are you saying? Well, let's look at the text. What does it actually say? Is it possible that these are true Christians who have now lost their salvation and they're falling away? Well, it says it's impossible in the case, verse 4, 
of those who have once been enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? Well, this isn't some sort of an ancient um, Near East sort of a philosophy word here. It, It means literally to have the light shine or shone on you. I believe it means that they were given the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This really stands out as a contrast of those who have never heard the gospel. There are many in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus They've never heard the word Emmanuel. They've never been called to rejoice because of that word, which means God is with us in Christ. They don't have the light of Christ shining on them. But that's not the case for these people in verse 4. They have seen the gospel. Now, whether they're true Christians or not is yet to be seen as we work through this text, but they have no excuse As you have today, they also had heard the gospel. But it doesn't just say of these folks that they have once been enlightened, that they had the gospel shine on them, but it also says that they've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, one of the things that we'll have to come to grips with is that we don't really know what a lot of these things mean. We can speculate. We can study and try to figure out and piece together, but the reality is I don't really know what he means by heavenly gift. The commentators are all disagreeing and arguing, and all the churches in Hagerstown are as well with all the pastors. It's a possible reference to the Holy Spirit. Some say it's also a reference to the gospel, this heavenly gift that's been sent by God, communicated through Christ, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. That the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus, it could be that. We're not really sure, but what is clear is what's meant by the word taste. Taste. You see, you can hardly eat something that you haven't tasted, but you can certainly taste something that you have not eaten. Does that make sense? You can hardly eat something that you've not tasted, If you ate something, maybe you ate it so fast that you didn't taste it much, but you still tasted it. But we've all been on the receiving end of a meal that we gave a little taste to, and we thought, you know what? I'm going to pass on that. We had a little taste. Maybe we, we got our napkin out, and we politely acted like we were sneezing, and really we were just depositing that little taste that we had on our tongue, just pleasant as it was, and we, we spit it out. You've tasted it, but you didn't actually eat of it. You'll have to remember that word, taste. It goes on to say, and shared in the Holy Spirit. At least in part, they've experienced the fellowship that the Holy Spirit provides, which is community and unity. The gifts of the Spirit manifest in the the, the assembling of the, the saints, each using their gifts deposited by the Holy Spirit to benefit one another and to strengthen each other. That's something that these people who have at one point tasted and now fallen away that they've been at. Verse 5, it goes on. And they've again tasted the goodness of the Word of God. In other words, they've seen the promises of God in His Word. They've noticed That what he says is good and it's true. They've sat under the same preaching that many others have. And yet they've still fallen away. And it says, and the powers of the age to come. I think this is a reference to the miracles in the church. That have been promised to accompany the messianic age. And we see that through the book of Acts. We see that through all the New Testament uh, uh, epistles to the local churches. And we even see it in our own church. I think of our family meeting that we had just a few weeks ago where a man stood up and testified about all the things that he had been saved from, the life that he had lived before, looking nothing like the life that he is living right now. It's a miracle in the church. It's tasting and witnessing of the powers of the age to come. Resurrection happening spiritually right now. And the key word in all of this, again, is tasted. These folks that have fallen away 
They've tasted. And I don't want to overplay that word, but the idea is that they've only tasted. They've not ingested. They've not drank deeply from the gospel. They've not lived by it. They've not leaned into it, dependent wholly on it. They've only tasted it. Do you remember when Jesus fed the multitude there on the side of that mountain and then indirectly sent many of his followers away because he said this afterwards. He said, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. And everybody was like, Phew, even the disciples, shocked. I'm talking about the inner 12, right? John 6, 60 and following says this, and when many of his disciples heard it, this wild statement, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which, by the way, they would soon. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then what does verse 66 say? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What do we see here? We see that there were many that were in the community. They ate the bread. They tasted of the fish. They're on the side of the mountain. They gathered up the, the, the baskets together. They, they sang the songs. They heard the scriptures. They heard the teaching. They were called to repent. They were called to believe. And it seemed as though they were and that they had until that day, until the day that they stopped, until the day that they left, until the day that they turned back and no longer walked with him. And as commentary, John offers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The summation of these statements is a description of the Christian life in the community of the saints. It's not saying that they truly were saved. No, as opposed to the one who had never heard the gospel clearly, they heard it, they saw it, they tasted of it, they felt of it, but they turned and they walked away. That's what verse six says. And then having fallen away, now, each and every one of us that are considering ourselves to be Christians, uh, hoping that we truly are in the faith, have all fallen, even this week. We've all made mistakes. We've all sinned. We've all stumbled. And maybe in your mind, you're thinking, well, because I've made that mistake, because I, I talked to my spouse in a way that wasn't loving and kind, or maybe because I didn't share the gospel as I should, or as I, I had that thought about that one person that was not very kind, maybe you're thinking, is this me? Am I the one that's fallen away? Well, I think John Owen, a great Puritan, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, offers a helpful distinction. He says, our apostle makes a distinction between stumbling and falling. The apostle has fallen away in mind here. It's not falling into this or that actual sin. It, it's not falling into temptation. It's not falling by denying some aspect of Christian belief. Rather, this falling away consists in total renunciation of all the principles and teachings of Christianity. Such was the sin of those who relinquished the gospel in order to return to Judaism. These that were falling away aren't just simply making a mistake, tempted to sin and then sin. No, these are those who have completely tasted and seen and not declared that the Lord is good. They've tasted and seen of the gospel, but they've left it. They've abandoned it. 
The idea is as if they had walked up to an ice cream shop, looked at the list of all their ice creams, a little bit overwhelmed and thought, hey, I'll taste this Christian gospel one. Can I have a couple scoops of that? And after getting their cone, they have a taste of it. They're sitting at their table with all the others eating the exact same cone and they decide, I'm in the wrong place. I don't really like this. I've tasted of it. I've been associated with it. And now I'll turn away. These are those who had been around Christ. They'd heard the gospel. They'd heard the call to turn from dead works and to have faith in God as declared in the person and gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet they had turned away and said, there's nothing there for me. This is not my flavor. One commentator offers this. Salvation has a continuity from present to future and manifests a life of perseverance and obedience to God. If the present involves true salvation, that salvation will be consummated at the end. If at the end one appears to persevere, then the former public association with the Christian community is manifested to have been illegitimate. This doesn't mean that the apostates were knowingly fraudulent, just that they had not truly been changed by God's power. And so when we consider this group that has fallen away, that's tasted, and now they rejected it. Were they truly saved at one point in their lives? The scriptures are clear. No, they were not. You say, well, can you see that from this text? Well, I believe that I can. And yet there are many other. And to support, in an effort to support this third and final explanation or interpretation, I want to invite you to look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. This is a very helpful, sobering passage of scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, where it says this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be become plain that they were not of us. The third interpretation is this, that it's simply a mirage. Simply that unbelievers only appearing to be regenerate have now fallen away. Unbelievers who appeared for a period of time to be regenerate have now fallen away. Sadly, we all could probably think of those who at one point in your life knew somebody that was walking with the Lord, or it appeared to be, and now they've fallen away. They were evidencing some sort of fruit. There was reasonable uh, uh, evidence for you to consider them to be a brother or sister in Christ, and now they've gone on to teach a totally different doctrine, totally apart from Christ, following after the philosophies of this world, such as... Judas Iscariot. For us, on this side of the week of the passion, it makes perfect sense. We knew from the beginning, Judas was a Judas. And yet, that wasn't the case for the disciples. And potentially not even for Judas himself. He, in the end, clearly demonstrated what side he was on. He clearly demonstrated at the end of his life what he believed about Jesus, what he believed about this message that God had sent in the person of Jesus. But Judas isn't the only one that we see in Scripture. There's another one, particularly in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. This is a reference to right after Stephen's murder there in Jerusalem. He was the first Christian martyr. He preached a killer sermon and they killed him. And after this, Philip 
The church kind of uh, experiences like some persecution, not just for, for Stephen, but for many in the church. And the church is in a sense dispersed, locked down, but they, they escape and the gospel goes with them. One particular man by the name of Philip, he goes down to Samaria and when he's there, he preaches the gospel to a, a, a neighboring town there, a city there in the north. And when he gets there, verse nine picks up there. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the leadest to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they all paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It's a wonderful story. There in this particular city, they all really loved Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, Simon the great. He thought a lot about himself. He called himself the great, but he wasn't alone. The whole city followed after him and loved him. And they thought that the power of God was clearly manifest in this dude's life. But when Philip, simple Philip, shows up and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happens? They began to pay attention to Philip's message about Jesus and not to Simon. And what's interesting is the same was true of Simon. Verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed. What did he believe? He believed what Philip preached. The good news about the kingdom of God, the good news about the name of Jesus Christ. Simon himself believed that. And what does it say? Not only did he believe it, but after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So there was a period of time in Philip's life where he had a little disciple by the name of Simon. Simon the Great was now following after Philip, the preacher of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does it say? And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Part of that amazement is the fear of God, seeing the wonder and fear of what God is accomplishing in this age of the Messiah. But the story doesn't end there. It's a wonderful story up until this point, but it doesn't end there. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on, on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit... Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What's revealed about Simon's heart is that he didn't love Jesus and the message that he proclaimed. But he loved still to be thought of as great. He still loved what fame and fortune afforded him. And what he had now seen through this incredible act of the laying on of hands and the receiving of the Spirit for the first Gentiles in the church, he saw as an opportunity for him to become great once again. And rightly, he was corrected by Peter. Repent. This is wickedness. And pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. 
You're still in the bond of iniquity. You've not been set free. Your motives have not been changed. Your intentions have not been corrected. But I do love how 24 ends the story. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Up until this point in time, well, there was three points in time. First, in Simon's life, we see that he appears to have repented. He appears to have believed the good news, even to the point of being baptized. And that looks good. And in a sense, he recants of his own desire for greatness and begins to declare and worship Jesus Christ. But then he reveals the secrets of his heart. And it's seen that he, in fact, has not repented of these other sins. His motives are impure and they are manifest. And when he's called to repent, what does it say? What does he say in that third and final part? It seems as though he wants to repent. Which is evidence and hope that he truly maybe was a Christian. But it is a reality that it's, he likely wasn't. Similar to those in Matthew chapter 7. We reference this passage often in our study of Hebrews. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus is, is speaking here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, Jesus speaking prophetically. On that day, on that final day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do many, many mighty, great works in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How are we to understand Hebrews chapter 6? That there's a potential that some of us even, who think of ourselves as to be walking in the light, to be walking in repentance, repentance from dead works and faith in Christ, and yet in the end, we may be told by who we thought was our Lord that he never knew us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you want to turn there, I would encourage you to do so. If not, you can follow along with me. The scriptures say, in verse 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. What is it saying? Praise God, because there was a point in your life where you were dead, but now he has caused you, Christian, to be born again to a living hope, not a dead sadness, but a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. To what point? To an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading, your salvation has been given to you. It's been caused by God alone. And where is it kept? Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded. By, who's, who's guarding your salvation? God. Where is he guarding it? He's guarding it in heaven. But how is it being accomplished? Verse 5. Through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 are clear. Our salvation is not by any works of righteousness which you have done. It's not given to you because you've done something good, because you're better than somebody else. No, that your salvation has been given to you by the grace of God and it's accessed through faith. Believing that Jesus is your righteousness 
and that he has paid for your sin. That's faith. But it goes on to say, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's the apostle saying there in 1 Peter 1? God has saved you and he's saved you through faith, faith that he has given to you. He's guarding that, but he's given it to you. And that faith will act even now through the various trials that you're facing. It will not fade. It will not be relinquished. But in the end, it will result in the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How are we to reconcile all this? As we look at this warning passage, how are we to reconcile That these folks appeared to be believers and now at the end we find out that they're actually not. The key to understanding this is a word, regeneration. Regeneration. Definition of that should be on the screen for you. It's not the best, but it will work for our practices today, our purposes. Regeneration, the giving of spiritual life to a human being who was dead in their sins And get this next part. It's an invisible act by the invisible God on a person's invisible spirit. Key in on that last sentence. It's an invisible act by the invisible God in a person's invisible spirit. It's the act of God bringing somebody to life somebody who was dead in their sins, the breath of God has come upon them, spiritually speaking, and revived them. Their heart of stone was taken out and they have now received a heart of flesh. They were in the valley of dry bones and now they have come together, drawn together, and received the breath of God. But this act of regeneration is not something that you can touch. It's not something that you can see. It's something that we hold by faith. It's an invisible act done by the invisible God on your invisible spirit. In the words of the late J.I. Packer, salvation is in the New Testament has a past, present, and future tense. In the past, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Presently, we are being saved from the power of sin. Its rule over us has been broken. And in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. And so salvation according to J.I. Packer, has three aspects, three tenses, past, present, and future. If you have received salvation, what have you received? You have received salvation from the penalty of sin. The wrath of God, the expense of your sin against God has been paid for. You've been saved from that. That's happened in the past. Presently, Christian, if you are truly saved, you are being saved from the power of sin. And what does that mean? You no longer have to be in your jail cell any longer. You no longer have to be dead. You don't have to be in that grave. You've been set free. You say, well, sometimes I still act like I'm dead. Sometimes I still act like I'm dead in my sins and I sin. Yes, that's true. But you're not a slave to it. Before, you had no choice but to sin. And now, if you are to sin, it's because you desired to go back into the grave, back into your jail cell. But you've been freed from the power of sin. That's part of salvation in the present. And in the future, what do we have to look forward to? That we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Never to be tempted again. 
Not only will we be freed from that jail cell, from that casket, but both the jail cell and the casket will be destroyed in and of themselves with us not having the ability to go back into them ever again. Now, when we, can, when we consider salvation in these three tenses in this word regeneration, regeneration really chiefly has much to do with that first stage in which we were transformed by the power of God. New creatures, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, a new creation created for something different than what we had been doing. And not only that, but we now have peace with God. According to Romans chapter 5. But the truth is, we can't really see that work of regeneration. We don't see any evidence in a person's life that past regeneration, that freedom from the, not the power of sin, but freedom from the penalty of sin, we can't witness. But what we can witness is freedom from the power of sin in this life. How do we know that the true nature of someone's soul is that they are regenerate? For us, who see with physical eyes, who walk by faith, not by sight, we can only judge by the fruit that they bear. In this day and age, that's an uncomfortable statement for me to make and probably for you to listen to and hear and to, to agree with. This idea that we're to actually judge somebody. Maybe you've heard it before. Only God can judge me. Only God will judge me. Maybe you think that that's a safe thing to say. Maybe you think it's a kind thing to say, and the reality is that it's not. It's unfounded and it's unbiblical. We are, in fact, to judge one another, not in the sense that we cast judgment, but that we say, it looks as though I see this and you're saying this. Help me understand what's happening. Brother, you're not acting like a Christian. You're acting like an unbeliever. Repent like you did before. It's a kindness for us to judge. Well, where do you get that from this passage? Well, look at verses 7 and 8. Look at verses 7 and 8. The scriptures say, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here's the idea. In this illustration, you have two fields. Both have seemingly been prepared for spring, Ready to, to uh, they've, been, they've been sown with the seed, plowed up, ready to rock, cleared off. They're just waiting on the rain. And then the rain actually comes and it completely drenches both fields. It gives them everything that they need to, be a bounce, to, to bear a, a bountiful harvest. And yet in one field, what do we see rising up? We see a useful crop. But what happens in the other field? Thorns and thistles. Nothing useful. Only that which should be burned and destroyed. Nothing helpful. Reminiscent of the curse. The key to understanding this illustration really is the context. This illustration is helping us to, to come to a conclusion in our own minds of what's actually being said. Look again at verse 1. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Hey, you've already, been, you've already had the seeds sown in you, the good seeds, and you've already had the rain fall on you. What does the rain look like? Well, it's not a different sort of a rain. It's the rain about repentance from dead works. That's the rain that fell on you. It's the rain that was calling you of, to have faith towards God and and, and, and believing in the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come for him. It's the rain that fell and struck to them about the washings and baptisms. It's a, the one about the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment that's coming for us all. That's what that is. He goes on to say it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who've tasted the heavenly gift. What's that heavenly gift? It's all the things that have just been mentioned before. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God, the things mentioned above. The powers of the age to come, and then they've fallen away. It says to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again to the the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt, it's impossible. So what's the reign? It's the elementary doctrine of Christ. It's the gospel that they've been enlightened with. It's repentance and faith. And if that's what the reign is, then how are we to understand this illustration spiritually? It's this. There's nothing else. There's no other hope for you. If when you hear the gospel... If when you hear the call to repent and you don't repent, there's nothing else. There's nothing else that will satisfy you. There's nothing else that will bring you to right relationship with God. That's it. Are there any other flavors? Nothing. There's no other foundation. Surely there's another kind of rain back there that you could allow to fall on this barren field that only gave thorns and thistles. Nothing. There's nothing else. There's salvation and no one other than Jesus Christ. No other foundation will do it. So much of the basis for those so-called peculiar practices of the church, many of them that we hold to, such as not mindlessly rushing to baptize new converts, actually practicing church discipline, calling people to repent, And when they don't, removing them from the fellowship. Intentional communal discipleship. Fencing the communion table and only inviting obedient, baptized members of a like-minded Christian church. All of these things and many other practices that we practice and hold dear really stem from the reality of a text like this. That not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is truly a Christian. The truth is we want to see the rain fall and we want to see the fruit bear because that same rain, that message of repentance and faith, it may fall on you a little bit. and You might see a little bit of fruit. You might see some green leaves popping out. You might see that tree begin to grow tall But in the end, time will demonstrate whether it's a useful crop, whether it's a fruitful crop, or whether it's actually just thorns and thistles. This goes back to the parable of the soils. There was a point in time when each soil, well, not each of them, but most of the soils, demonstrates some sort of life and vibrancy. But time shows those who are truly receiving and bearing fruit. There's three realities I want you to see that are just floating to the top here. Regardless of the which way you interpret this text, you've got to know this. Number one, there's a real danger. There's a real danger. Those who fall away from the faith, we can't allow them to, to slip calmly into the night. Well, they just don't want to be here anymore, so we let them leave No, we need to confront them. We need to lovingly, humbly pursue them, calling them to repent. It's necessary. It's important. Why? Every professing believer needs to take these words to heart, examine their own lives. Why? To make their hope sure. To see if they're truly in the faith. There's a real danger Two, appearances can be deceiving. Just because you're sitting in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. You've heard that before. Sitting in a pew doesn't make you a Christian. Participation in the Christian community, being a good church member, it doesn't necessarily equal salvation. And so appearances can be deceiving. The reality is there's a call on us to not give up, to not abandon, to not fall away. Appearances can be deceiving. We ourselves can be deceived. And this third point, summary point, that we'll spend a lot of time next week, Lord willing, looking at, 
is that faith produces fruit. Faith given by God produces fruit. Another way to say it would be that faith produces faithfulness. Think about that. Faith produces faithfulness. True spiritual life really can't be evaluated apart from fruitful faithfulness in the Christian life. True faith always produces true works, good works. I've pointed out the right interpretation of the three that I believe the scriptures are giving to us. I want to take a moment now and look at three different ways that we can respond. One response this morning would be not concerned at all. Not concerned at all. Now, I'm sure that's not most of us, but potentially there are some this morning that would really not be concerned at all from this passage. Scriptures teach us that those who are not concerned, who have fallen away, who see that their hearts are not after the Lord, that we are not acting in obedience, we're not acting in repentance and faith towards God, that we are un, that, that, that that person is, it's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Why? Because that's the very thing they won't do, repent. And what are they doing then? They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The picture there is that these apostates, these that are not concerned, are standing with those who are jeering our Lord and Savior. They're crying, crucify him. Not so he can be their salvation, not so he can be their spotless lamb, but so that he can die and be silenced. That in his public shame, he will be disregarded and held in contempt. I pray that that's not you this morning. I pray that as you hear this text, you're not unconcerned, standing in a sense with these apostates. That's response number one. There's another response. I would say as dangerous and bad as the first. Response to be driven to works. One that drives you to works. I would argue that this is either an unregenerate response or it is an immature response. And as the preacher was saying last week, it's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of one needing milk. They need their foundations shored back up. You see, the doctrine of once saved, always saved, now shaken in your minds, might tempt you to run back to works, the very thing that our preacher denounced last week. What did he say? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. We don't need to go back and teach you again that dead works get you nowhere. And that you've got to repent and trust in the, in the provision of Christ on the cross through the Father. We don't need to go back to that again. Really, we'll spend a lot of time next week looking at that. But for now, I want to just point you to the basics. When you see your sinfulness, don't resort to working for your salvation. That sort of change doesn't last. It ends up just bearing thorns and thistles. So stop trying to earn salvation. Simply trust Christ for salvation. There's a third response, and I hope that this is where you're at. Be driven to Christ. Not driven to, to good works, dead faith, but be driven to Christ. Really, this is the main idea, and we're going to end right here. The main idea. Our soul Hope of salvation is faith in Christ alone. That's it. When you come to a warning passage like this, if your response is, eh, whatever. I would call you to repent. If your response is, I I've got to work harder. I've got to show more fruit. I've got to prove that I really am a, a good field, that when the rain falls on me, I can produce that good fruit. If that's your response, again, I would say, repent. Turn away from those dead works. They don't save you. Let your response be this one, that you're driven to Christ. 
Let your response be that your only hope of salvation is faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that this would be the anthem of our church. That when the tempter calls us to despair, when he shows us our sin, the, 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 the wickedness that is in our hearts, that we wouldn't argue that. That we would look to Christ. When we look around the room and we see that other people potentially maybe producing a little more useful fruit than we. Father, forgive us from returning again to dead works. Father, cause us to be a church in the good days and in the bad days. In the valley of the shadow of death and on the mountaintops. In all of these situations that we are constantly, continually looking unto Jesus, the one who has passed into the, to the heavenlies, the one who is now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Let our plea be only Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.